This is an RNZ podcast. New Zealand First is welcoming the deployment of more soldiers at the managed isolation facilities, saying it is something it's been calling for. But it says the Defence Force could be used even more and bases around the country could be converted into COVID-19 quarantine facilities. That was Corin Dan introducing RNZ's morning report on Thursday, the day New Zealand First and National released their border protection policies for the upcoming election. And the government, under severe pressure over testing and security lapses, announced its own tweaks to the current regime. And while New Zealand First did indeed welcome boots on the ground to bolster the security of isolation and quarantine facilities, the party's defence spokesperson, who's the current Minister of Defence, Ron Mark, didn't seem to welcome some of the questions about that on Morning Report from Susie Ferguson. Do we not already have military rigour uh, within the quarantine with Air Commodore Darren Webb heading it up? Well, it depends at what level you're, you're talking um, as to what the, the quality of the service delivery you're going to get. I mean, if you're talking about the, the top end uh, with Darrell, uh, with uh, Digby himself, uh, it's very clear, highly professional officer and very experienced. If you're talking about planners, again, very clear, highly professional, very experienced people. But while Ron Mark said he had confidence in the officers in charge, he wasn't quite so confident about the civilians keeping guard. If you get right down to the bottom end, we're dealing with a person who might be 19 years of age and has only just been employed last week and has been paid a minimum, uh, an absolute bottom line wage and required to bring their own lunch along. So the security guards who are actually doing the work on the ground are the ones where he's not been able to bring that rigour in? I think it's, it's uh, across the board. And I think also, you know, to be fair, there are those of us who said right at the outset that um, we would need this level of rigour, discipline and control of our personnel. Now, going military would seem to be a good way of getting that. And on Morning Report, Susie Ferguson asked, would the 500 real soldiers have guns. No. <laughs> why, would, why would New Zealand troops be armed within New Zealand? That's just such a ludicrous proposition. Why is it ludicrous? Uh, it well, if people think of soldiers, I think they wrong. would probably think of a soldier with a gun, wouldn't they? Well, you do, clearly. So, no guns then. And then, Ron Mark went on to say this. Uh, a, a security guard, ironically, a bouncer outside of a pub in Christchurch, has more power than a soldier does. That's, that's a fact well, of life. Well, so if, so if a security guard, hang on, so if a security guard has more power than a soldier does, why bring in the military if they're going to have less power in the situation? You're making the, uh, the classic mistake of believing that power is influence. And suddenly, soldiers doing security didn't seem quite so much like a guarantee of the greater rigour and discipline that Ron Mark had talked about. But it's far from the first time that plans which seemed sound at the time for border control turned out to be not so solid. For example, last June, the government announced that all border workers would be tested for COVID-19. But NewsHub's investigations editor, Michael Mora, recently revealed that fewer than half of them had been tested by the 3rd of August. And the heat has been turned up on the powers that be after the confirmation that community transmission returned almost a fortnight ago. Some journalists have had tough calls to make on that too, including TBNZ's Pacific Affairs reporter Barbara Drever. The morning after, four members of a South Auckland family tested positive. Barbara Drever was live on breakfast on TBNZ1 in Witty, saying this. 
Well, what I can confirm, absolutely devastating for the family. I can tell you that what we are looking at is a Pacifica family based here in South Auckland. And the gentleman who tested positive, a man in his 50s, he works at a facility um, here in South Auckland as well. He works the night shift. After that, online condemnation and abuse directed at Barbara Drever began almost immediately from those who objected to the way she singled out the family as Pacifica. But on the One News Now website the next day, Barbara Drever insisted that, in her own words, it would have been the absolute peak of irresponsibility not to. Pacific families do not live in isolation. To not share the information that the affected family was one of our own and interacting in our community circles for days before being tested was unfathomable. My business is not to keep information hidden or censored because people might be upset or feel targeted. People's lives are at risk. There is too much on the line for tippy-toeing around people's sensitivities. And Barbara Drieber isn't the only journalist who's copped flack for the calls made recently covering the outbreak. During a daily COVID-19 briefing last weekend, a NewsHub reporter put this question to the Director General of Health on behalf of NewsHub's Michael Mora. Sorry, can we just circle back to the testing? Um, there have been repeated failures of the testing system under your leadership. Shouldn't you take some responsibility for what's happening and offer your resignation? Well... Uh, I think the Minister's traversed this very well. I don't think there has been um, uh, failures of our testing system in this country. Just remember, this country has got the highest rate of testing per confirmed case of any in the world. And not for nothing did Michael Mora want Dr Ashley Bloomfield's response to that. For months, Michael Mora has investigated the government's COVID planning and responses, and some of the shortfalls he's exposed are being patched up right now, as the government and the Ministry of Health play catch-up at the border. But Michael Mora has also been condemned online for that, as he told listeners on Magic Talk Radio last Wednesday. You know, I've been um, abused and assaulted um, online. Um, I've been criticised for just doing my job. You know what's really annoying about the whole thing is Half the time on social media, people are complaining that journalists aren't doing their jobs properly or asking the right questions. And then as soon as um, someone like myself sends some questions to our gallery staff and we're, we're, you know, we're asking some, some, some questions and we're revealing um, failings like we did last week um, with the lack of border testing, uh, then, we get, then I get criticised for, um, for asking questions of the Director-General and the Health Minister. I mean, that, that's what we're there for. I'm, I'm not here to make friends. Now, Michael Morrow was at pains there to point out that the online attacks were coming from the public, not from the media, but lately some media critics have condemned the COVID-19 media coverage. Last month, the former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said that after the nationwide COVID-19 lockdown, many in the media had reverted to what he called attack journalism and were guilty of amplifying political culpability. And so did Gordon Campbell last Thursday on scoop.co.nz. He accused parts of the media of knee-jerk negativism and catastrophizing the current problems. We seem to be hyping ourselves up over our failings as if total chaos reigns at the border. True, some human failings have been evident in our responses to these unprecedented events. Once detected, though, they are being fixed. Even the lapses in the testing of border staff has been fixed with so far. Nothing like the dire consequences observed elsewhere. Gordon Campbell pointed to an 11-minute grilling of the military man in charge of quarantine and isolation, Air Commodore Darren Webb, on RNZ's checkpoint last Wednesday, in which he pointed out that a fair bit had actually 
gone right. We are running 32 facilities. Um, up until now, we've successfully managed to reintegrate over 40,000 people back into New Zealand, Lisa. So, um, so what we're saying is it's a really robust system, but it is, a, it is a system with people at the heart of it. And I guess I'll just take this opportunity to remind everybody who's listening, both inside those facilities and New Zealanders at home, that, that personal accountability lies at the very heart of defences to our uh, protection against COVID. It's only logic to, logical to expect things and minor things to go wrong all the way through, and, uh, and we're finding that, but we're fixing them as we go. So are the reporters who have been zeroing in on the flaws and demanding accountability really serving the public interest? This week, Hayden Donnell asked News Hub's Michael Mora about the fine line between scrutiny and the risk of undermining efforts that have been mostly successful so far, whether it's by good luck or good management. Kia ora, Michael. Welcome to Media Watch. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just first off, can you explain why you asked or you got a proxy to ask the question that you were criticised over so much this week? Why did you ask Ashley Bloomfield whether he should resign? Well, I think there's been a very clear failure to implement a key government strategy um, after more than two months ago it being announced on June 23. And it's become abundantly clear that that policy has not been implemented. But it's important to note, if you think back about the press release on June 9, about testing people twice before they leave managed isolation, we know that in that case, people left with COVID-19, and there was a big review of that system. I asked that question on the basis that, in my opinion, there has been um, continued failures by the health ministry to implement policies, to give straight answers to the public on key issues, I absolutely stand by asking that question. And it's also important to go back and just have a think about what was said about the testing of these border workers at these one o'clock press conferences. On August the 3rd, Minister Chris Hipkins said these workers, that we do have a testing program in place for all these workers. Dr Ashley Bloomfield supported this comment also on August 3rd. And the day before that, the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, said the workers are being tested all the way through. So these statements are problematic because they build a narrative that makes the public think officials are well across testing at the border and of isolation staff. And as we know, that could not be further from the truth. It wasn't just over this particular, uh, what you say is, uh, uh, misconceptions that they've promoted at 1pm. You've actually reported on the flu vaccine, shortage of that in health clinics. Uh, you've reported on the lack of PPE uh, in, in health clinics, community care facilities, and, and also in June, as you say. This is, this is what you see as part of a pattern. Yes, I think there has been a, a pattern of failures. And unfortunately, in my opinion, the Director General has on occasion been economical with the truth on several issues. This goes for reassurances over supplies and distribution of flu vaccine, swabs and PPE. And the issue here is that it's not fair on the GPs and nurses around the country who are tasked with implementing such strategies. If the Director General is saying, as he did earlier in this response, that there's no issues with the distribution of swabs and flu vaccine and that we have plenty of PPE and doctors around the country are telling me that they can't get it, then that's a problem. And if the main distribution company of the flu vaccine is sending out emails, which I obtained, telling hundreds of doctors in Auckland that they've run out of stock, quote, while the DG is saying we have millions of doses, then that absolutely clashes with the constant reassurances we're getting from the top. And this has been a pattern 
So I absolutely stand by that question of asking the Director-General whether he should take any accountability over this most recent failure and consider resigning. Journalists uh, at News Hub, sometimes in the political gallery, have been accused in the past of what's colloquially called scalp hunting. Uh, just looking, hunting for these resignations uh, and sometimes not being constructive. Was that what you're doing here? It is not about scalp hunting. It is about doing our job. And that job is to not just reiterate and repeat what is said at one o'clock, but actually dig into what's being said. And if we come up with evidence or information um, that counters that, then we must have the ability to test that. And that is a journalist's role. And some quarters in the public have been um, upset at some questions, but this is what journalists do, and I think we should be keep, keep doing this. Do you think that the part of the resistance, though, is because of the popularity of Ashley Bloomfield and the respect for the job that he's done in these 1pm briefings, where he seemed to be calm and clear and in control? Do you think that the resistance to these calls is because of that affection for Ashley Bloomfield? I think to some extent Dr Ashley Bloomfield is idolised and celebrated um, by many people in the country. He has stood up in the public as being this person who is almost worshipped now. He's on television every day at one o'clock saying things that everyone's lives and livelihoods depend on. But the danger with holding him up as a hero is that we must remember that he is accountable for this response. He is highly paid. He is the top public health official in charge of this. And if he is giving messages at one o'clock that do not stack up, if he is giving messaging that is not transparent, then we must be able to ask critical questions of him. And that's really important. So I think we must, as New Zealanders, be cautious not to just celebrate and idolise Dr Bloomfield, but actually remember that he is accountable for this response. Look, I'm not saying Dr Bloomfield hasn't done a good job. All I'm saying is that there needs to be more transparency. You can't stand there and say that you've got a testing program in place and all these workers are being covered because we know that that's not true. What do you make of uh, criticism, There's, I think, of Gordon Campbell, among others, that, that media or reporters like you focus too much on the negative and not on the generally successful running of these managed isolation facilities, you know, which have a population the size of a small town and a quite a complex thing to run? I haven't actually seen that uh, criticism. But what I would say is that I don't think Gordon is speaking daily with frontline health workers who are working in this response. And I am every single day, and they are telling me what's being said at one o'clock doesn't stack up. This is an important point about your reporting, right, that you see it as your responsibility to reflect problems of these frontline workers that you are in touch with rather than necessarily uh, adhering to what public opinion is. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, not, it's not about public opinion. It's about people on the ground who don't have a voice and who are trying to implement what the government is saying. Our job as journalists is to highlight these failures and to provide a voice for those who would otherwise not have one. Do you feel any pressure from that public opinion, that, that criticism that you do receive? You're a commercial news organisation. Obviously, you do have to appeal to an audience or otherwise you don't survive. 
Look, I, I don't. My um, my team at News Hub, including the managers, have been incredibly supportive of my journalism. They know that I'm doing the right thing. Um, of course, I read some of the negative comments. But like I say, our job is not to make friends. I guess there's a degree of um, you know, pressure when people are commenting on Twitter saying, oh, well, I've looked back at Mora's stories and he's basically been critical the whole way through. And if we're not getting it right, we have to fix it. That's where journalism becomes such a powerful mechanism in this, is if you do good journalism, you can enact change. And that's exactly what I've done with my work, and I'll continue doing it. How much of your negative feedback do you think comes because you kind of get lumped in with a lot of the partisan commentators that are pretty relentlessly critical, no matter what's happening? Uh, do you think that that makes your job a little bit harder? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's always a difference here between, you know, commentators um, or presenters and then reporters who are building news stories and reporting every day. Um, but just to pick up on that um, negative feedback, I would say that actually when I first broke the story for News Hub about the border and isolation staff not being tested, um, yeah, there was a, a, a fair amount of um, criticism. But what's transpired is after the government acknowledged that indeed they had not got it right, suddenly that criticism started to dis disappear. And by and large, the comments I've read on social media have been supportive how do you feel personally about commentators taking your reporting and catastrophizing it? So people like maybe Kerry McIver saying that everything is a failure at the border and we're destined to become a glory avail of the South Pacific. I report the facts and I think if commentators are going to overstep the mark um, and make such comments, I think you just got to treat those with a bit of caution. I mean, catastrophizing uh, my reporting is not terribly helpful, um, and certainly in my reporting I haven't done anything like that. I stick to the facts and don't offer up any sort of opinion outside of that. Look, I think there can be a, a risk in that because it, it can potentially build up anger or frustration even more so among the public. But look, these are talkback radio shows we're talking about. Some of these presenters will take my reporting and have opinions you know, it's up to them to convey those opinions in a responsible way, whether or not it's always responsible what's being said. I mean, that's up for ordinary New Zealanders to make that decision. Now, there's one criticism that has actually been levelled at journalists throughout this health crisis, which is that actually if you do lots of negative reporting, uh, there is a danger that you could be undermining trust in public health officials during a pandemic, and maybe that could be counterproductive. We must bear in mind, of course, that if we are going to put a story out there, um, you know, it has to be supported by good evidence, and it has to, if, if it is if it is critical. But of course, that's what we always do. I would say what is undermining trust and confidence is the lack of transparency from our top health officials. Not my reporting, or not anyone else's reporting. We're just doing our job. Yes, of course, we have to bear in mind we're dealing with a um, public health crisis here and we have to be careful and responsible with our reporting. But that's exactly what we are doing. 
some of the people who are criticising me um, are ill-informed. Some of the criticism is just completely deluded that I'm getting um, paid cash by some politicians to find holes in the system. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's just investigative journalism is what, is what it's called. I'm not being confrontational. I'm just doing my job. Thanks so much for joining me, Michael Mora. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. That was News Hub's investigations editor, Michael Mora, talking there to Hayden Donnell. And you can hear more of that conversation in the online version of the story. Just go to the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in your podcast feed.